A time of reckoning like no other. Voices galvanizing. A racial injustice revolution in America. And here in Canada, tragedy in a Quebec hospital where 37-year-old Indigenous mother of seven, Joyce Echequan, pleaded for help from her hospital bed as a nurse and orderly hurled hateful abuse at her. Moments later, Joyce Echequan died. The disturbing and shocking incident filmed on Joyce's cell phone for all the world to see. Today on Context, in the wake of two tragedies among many, we discuss why the value of Indigenous and Black women's lives matter. Here's Maggie John. Welcome to a special edition of Context in the wake of the tragic death of Indigenous woman Joyce Echequan, and the fact that there are missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in our country, what can be done about this heinous injustice? Professor Karen Lawford teaches gender studies at Queen's University and is a leader in Indigenous health who is here to help us understand more deeply what needs to be done. Professor Lawford, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So the video of uh, Joyce Echequan was difficult to watch a mother of seven filming her last moments um, on her cell phone what were your thoughts when you saw this and heard about it it was devastating it was devastating that this happened again and i'm sure it's happening right now and without the courage of joyce Sheshaquan to actually do a facebook live um, to share this, we would not know that this happened to her. And this is unacceptable. It is unacceptable on every level of anything. It's, it's completely wrong. And I'm so sorry to her family and her community and her partner and children. My deepest condolences to them. I, as you said, uh, Professor Lawford, this obviously has not been the first time this has happened. There has to have been a history. Tell us about the relationship of the Indigenous community and the healthcare system here in Canada. So the government of Canada, when Canada was forming, went to great efforts to erase and destroy and criminalize Indigenous health and wellness practices. So Indigenous midwifery, for example, was made illegal. Um, taking us off our land removes our ability to be healthy and well. So there have been great interventions, midwifery just being one example of ensuring that our knowledges um, and practices that kept us healthy and well for well over 30,000 years were no longer part of our knowledge system. So this is a continuing historical um, tension between an indigenous community and a system of, uh, of just inequity, it sounds like. It is, and it's also purposeful. The goal of Canada through the Indian Act was to civilize and assimilate ind Indigenous peoples into this generic Canadian identity. So when that happens, we are forced through various systems like the Indian Residential School and the 60 Scoop to actually then to survive, hmm. change our ways to survive. And I think a lot of us are tired of surviving the Joulette, um Hospital was flagged. The, the hospital where Miss Eshaquan died um, was flagged for discrimination against Indigenous people many times. Um, mm -hmm. The Premier has apologized. 
what do you think uh, needs to happen next? This is not something new in Quebec. Yes. So I think that it's, we're probably done with reports and words. I mm -hmm. think people are asking for change and they're not asking for change on the, just the individual level and also at the governance level and for systemic change. Systemic racism is underpinned by white supremacy. We need to address this. I want to go to uh, just the, the fact that we saw this on video. I mean, I could, you know, we saw Joy George Floyd die on video. Uh, a couple years ago, we saw Philando Castile also die on video. We have Joyce Eshaquan dying on video. What was it about Joyce that she thought that I need to document this um, experience and this ill abuse that I'm receiving? Because no one would believe. And that's the problem. We've been told time and again, not just as healthcare providers, but as a society, as members of Canada, that this is happening and we're choosing to not believe. We're choosing to ask for evidence and weighing that evidence against Western ideas of knowledge and information gathering. Someone's telling you, manage it, deal with it. We knew and we're gonna still know, just like with coerced and forced sterilizations. And last question, Professor Lawford, what does this say to indigenous women in our country? I think this, the support that the family is receiving says that we matter. But you know what? In some ways, I know that we matter. I know that Indigenous people matter to this world. And I know we make a great contribution on every level of Canadian society. We matter. So what does this show? We matter. And her death, I don't know what it will mean, but we are shown again. And this is a disgusting place for us to be in. And Canadians and Canada should be ashamed. Professor Karen Lawford teaches gender studies at Queen's University. Thank you for joining us today. On September 23rd, a Kentucky grand jury brought no charges against Louisville police in the shooting death of 26-year-old Breonna Taylor, who was killed in a botched police raid inside her own apartment. Instead, three charges were laid for wanted endangerment against former police officer Brett Hankinson, not for shooting Breonna Taylor, but for the bullets that hit next to Taylor's apartment. This decision set off a worldwide firestorm. I sat down with three of my friends, professional black women, speaker and mentor Cheryl Nemhard, lawyer, pastor, and writer Shannon Polk, and former journalist Bridget Entwee to discuss how this decision impacted us as black women. As you'll see, this is a very candid conversation. Okay, I wanna start with you, Bridget. What were your initial thoughts when you heard the news yesterday? Um, I avoided it as much as I possibly could. Um, and I think I was, just numb, honestly. Like, like you said, I don't, I wasn't shocked, but it is really, it's just hurtful and devastating, you know, like to think that like, you know, a system that's supposed to, well, allegedly supposed to be in place to mete out justice, like does not mete out justice over and over again in particular. And, and, and the just, and if the justice is meted out, it's meted out according to the depth and the, the amount of melanin in your skin, you know? So I think for me, I was very numb and I tried to tune it out as much as possible. And eventually I just was like, you know, uh, I listened to some music to try and like feel a little bit of joy, but I, I'm, I think I'm still very numb. Like I, 
I will tell you honestly, like I know for a fact that a part of my spirit died the night of the Trayvon Martin verdict. And that part of my spirit has never come back. Um, and I think a part of me, another part of me died like yesterday too with the Breonna Taylor verdict. So that's my truth. For me, I was more devastated, like Bridget, I was more devastated that I actually knew the outcome before it came. Mm. It hurt that I felt in my bones that justice would still not come in 2020. But I think where uh, the, the devastation took another level was when, was when I heard what the indictment, what the actual charges mm were going to be uh, for police officer Brett Hankinson, charged with three felony counts of wanton endangerment for the bullets that went into other apartments, for the bullets that went through the walls that could have risked the lives of other people. Um, and the apartments in question happened to also be uh, owner, uh, Caucasian owners uh, nearby. And, and so it's, it's very interesting because the narrative that we're hearing is it seems that more care and uh, more concern went into the endangerment of other people and the destruction of property than the life of Breonna Taylor herself. And whether or not it was, in, uh, it was verbally said, the message to us as Black women was loud and clear. I'm an attorney, and I said, it's going to be so difficult for them to do what's right. Let's see if they're able to do it. Um, and it just, as Cheryl said, I was actually more upset when I found out what the charges actually yeah. were. Because when I was in law school, I actually interned in the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I've mm -hmm. seen no-knock warrants executed. I understand how all this works. And it was obvious that those police officers failed in their duty. I mean, just on its face. But the fact that they could finagle their way out of that without bringing justice, because I know in my heart, had it been someone who was not Black, mm -hmm particularly if it had been a Caucasian woman, there would have been a different kind of outrage. Mm. And it would not have taken this long. And someone would have had to be held accountable. We've seen it even when we have American women who are assaulted mm. or die overseas. We've seen swifter justice than what we saw in the lower 48. Uh, what was it about this story that really penetrated hearts of Americans, Canadians, and the story went worldwide. Cheryl? Um, it, was, it was the absolute innocence of this victim. It was the fact that she was a caregiver, uh, putting her own life on the line during this COVID pandemic uh, season that we are in. Um, it, it was the simple, I think, common act of sleeping. Yeah. You know, the idea that even sleeping as a Black person, we are not safe. For me, it was uh, the, the, the layer for me that really gave me hope, we were talking about hope earlier, was to see the swell of support from our non-BIPOC community. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is what gave us all, if we want to articulate it, because we're, I know we're, we're holding, we're holding our hearts quite close tonight. Mm -hmm. But it gave us hope because we thought finally we're not alone. Mm. Help has come. And to see that even with this global outcry and this global movement, still no justice. Mm. 
the messaging that we have received today is devastating. That truly, it feels like Black women do not matter and their lives count for nothing. Any other thoughts on that? Um, I think for me, um, I, I would argue that I don't think Breonna Taylor's story has captured um, because nothing changed in the end result, right? Like the attention, absolutely. But fundamentally, uh, an officer got charged for putting bullets in a wall, but not for murdering a sleeping child, a 26-year-old. I'm sure all of us know where we were when we were 26 years old. Right. And I think for me, the part I, I really wouldn't even call it, I wouldn't call it capturing because like a social media upswell, if that can't lead to actual justice in real life, like to me, nothing has actually changed. Right. And I think for me, the thing that's so painful, that is so incredibly painful about this is that um, the Louisville, Kentucky police are behaving in the way that the police were intended to behave. Right. I think like, I always think I'm always thinking about hope. And I think for a really people want us to be hopeful. People want Black women to be hopeful. They want Black people to be hopeful. They want Black Christians to be hopeful. But I can tell you right now, I don't feel that hope. Like, I feel really like, I don't even know if it's despondent. I don't even know what the appropriate term is. But like, the idea, you know, a lot of people don't even know that like, in Canada, as well as in the United States, like, the police, the RCMP, were meant to basically like terrorize and segregate and torture indigenous and black people. Do you know what I mean? And to think that like all of these hundreds of years later, like, I guess for me, I'm, I'm trying to figure out why and why do I, and maybe I do have hope. Why do I continue to believe that an institution that was established for a very particular reason and that is to subjugate and oppress indigenous people, black people, other people of color. So we're not safe. We are not safe. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how you dress. It doesn't matter if you're jogging. It doesn't matter if you are sleeping. It doesn't matter if your boyfriend or your girlfriend is a drug dealer. It doesn't matter if your boyfriend or girlfriend is, I don't know, a, a sitting judge. We are not safe. I was going to say, I'm just so struck by the words of Surgeoner Truth. Ain't I a woman? Right? I mean, for decades, Black women have been saying, don't I deserve the same treatment that you give to other women of other ethnic groups? Don't you see me as feminine? Don't you see that? Don't you see that I deserve to be cherished, nurtured, protected? And when I look at Breonna Taylor, I see a woman who was dark. I see a woman who was heavy. And I think to myself, so if I don't fit a Barbie image of beauty, is my life less valuable, mm. right? And so all of those things, colorism, size, all of that impacts how she was viewed, how much value was given to her life and how easily she could be dismissed, even though she was doing all the right things. Mm. I mean, they're like, well, she was dating a guy. Well, I mean, how many women have left abusive situations and walked away from situations they got themselves in? And no one would ever say, oh, we should fault you for that previous bad choice because you're making new choices. You're making different choices. And particularly as a Christian, I just keep thinking to myself, so when you think of the Imago Dei, you think of those that are made in the image of God, you don't see me? Mm. You, you don't see her? You don't see her life as valuable? As people, you know, war for the rights of the unborn? What about those that are born? What about those that are living and producing and doing? And doesn't she have a right to live? And is her life 
not as valuable as that of a fetus. So for me, it's, it's, it's just the sheer lack of Christ-likeness that we see even in people's responses, like they were waiting for people to riot. It's if somehow being angry about injustice is the wrong response. I think this also spurs on, let's, let's transition from Brianna, and because we all saw ourselves at Brianna in some way, to just the challenge, the daily challenge of being a Black woman in North America. I love the quote that you had posted, Shannon, on your social media last night, and I saw it everywhere from Malcolm X. It says, the most disrespected person in America is the Black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the Black woman. The most neglected person in America is the Black woman. I think we would say maybe as well in Canada and a lot of other countries in the world. Cheryl, talk to me about uh, your lived reality as a Black woman and the challenges that you go through and the struggle that you have and being able to articulate that to maybe your white counterparts. Mm. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm going to start by reading um, the words from a post that I just put up mm. an hour ago. It is perfectly timed for this conversation. Dear Black women, you are valuable and worthy of protection and care. Don't let what you see tell you otherwise. Social media and society will say that you are the most disrespected, most dishonored of people. I say that you are a force to be reckoned with and that queendom is in your lineage. Royalty and regalness flows through your veins. God says that you are extravagantly loved and seen by him. My sister, you are a daughter of the king. I know it hurts beyond words, but for Brianna, for Sandra, and for every one of our ancestors, lift your head up. And so I refuse to receive in my heart or for my daughter or any of the women that I mentor the narrative that I am not valuable, that I do not matter, and that I am the most disrespected and the most dishonored. I do believe that a generation is rising up that will change that narrative, that will refuse that narrative, that will reject it wholeheartedly. And I'm seeing it in this beautiful, uh, you know, the black girl magic and, and black self-love and, and girls are loving themselves and beginning to love their skin. And that is a shift already that's happening because there was a time that fear and torture and violence forced us to believe our lower sense of value. We almost believed for a moment that we weren't even human. But now we know the truth. We know the truth because we've taught it to our generations. We have been the disruption for our bloodline and we will not take trauma and pass that down. We are instead educating our children about their, um, their kingship and their queenship. Their and value. so my, yeah, their value and, and their worth. And so my response to that is the opposite. I know what has been said about us, but I refuse to ingest it. I will, it is not my truth and my reality. And I will do everything with my last breath to change the narrative in my world. My, my, the black people in my world will know that they can make a difference and that they do matter. Bridget, I, you know, as I'm hearing Cheryl and Shannon so agree. And I think there is this, I'm tired. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm tired. And absolutely. I'm tired of every single day having to prove myself. I am 42 years old. I have a career. I have a house. I have a family. 
but I'm tired of always having to prove. How do you feel about that? Um, I have quit <laughs> on trying yeah. to prove myself. Like, uh, I think for me, like one of the things that I've done as a form of like just self-protection and self-care is like, I've told everybody, all my friends who aren't black, I will not be having conversations about anti-black racism with people who are not black. Like mm. go to the library, our girl Google is available 24 hours a day, you know, talk, I don't know, like, I don't know, put it, hold up a sign on a university campus for someone to come out and teach you. I, I'm not doing it. I will not like, and even sometimes like that even sometimes includes black men. Cause sometimes they can also be very exhausting in their like their inability to understand the difference, like what blackness means when you're black and female. Right. Mm. And I, for me, for my own protection, I'm like, no, <laughs> no, there's just some conversations I'm not going to have with, um, what, I guess in what we call mixed company. I want to talk about healing. And I, I know it's hard. And I, I'm like you, Bridget, you know, hope is sometimes elusive. And I wonder if, if there is any hope, but we serve Jesus and he is the giver of hope and he is the giver of life. And so as black women who are made in the image of God, how do you hold on to your faith? How do you hold on to your belief in Jesus? I want to start with you, Cheryl. Hmm. Um, I don't think that we can weather these storms, I, to my sister Shannon's point, without a rooted, grounded relationship in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is where we draw our identity and our worth. It's where we can run back for solace and comfort, where we can hide for refuge. And so um, our, we draw strength as believers from the almighty God himself, who affirms us daily in his word. So, uh, you know, we, and that's how we can so easily, uh, to all of my sister's points, reject these false truths, they're not even truths, these lies mm -hmm. that have been perpetuated, have been pushed down on our, genera on our generations. And you see, uh, and using the word of God to manipulate that, right? Um, and to, to, to slaves who didn't know any better and took the, the, the biblical word preached as the truth of God. Um, and we know about the slave master's Bible, leaving out the, the pieces of freedom and equality and justice. And so, so we, cling, we cling to the knowledge that we are made in the image of God and that uh, when he sees us, he sees a complete finished masterpiece. We hang on to that. Um, I'm also hopeful because I see an awakening happening in, in Christendom. Mm. However slow, however, you know, uh, tiny paced it may be, there is an awakening and, and with an awakening, there comes a reckoning. Mm. And so I feel like this moment is divine. I, I, I feel like we, we could not have done this without a pandemic and you have to, I can't unpack that right now, mm -hmm. but, but, but God's divine timing is absolutely perfect to shut us down, to remove all the distractions, to, to cause us to be in these silos and have to really examine ourselves. It's the divine operating table. He is opening us up and showing us the truth of ourselves. And the church is awakening to a reality that they've had, they have to acknowledge Mm -hmm. their role 
in all of this, the slave masters were pastors and preachers and Christians, and they used the Bible to push slavery. And so the, the church has been, the, the gospel has been tainted with that, and it's time for it to be redeemed. And um, I'm, I hang on to the truth um, and the knowledge that there are, there's a swelling movement of people from the kingdom of God that are saying, like, in, in unison, not on my watch, yeah. not anymore. Yeah. You know, just kind of building on what Cheryl said, there's always a remnant. There will always mm -hmm. be a remnant yeah. in the church, right? We see that throughout the prophets. I feel as though what gives me hope is that that remnant is willing to collectively repent. There's always been an unwillingness on the part of the church for collectives. Like, no, we're individuals, right? That Western mentality. It wasn't me. It wasn't my grandfather. It was my... It's like, no, 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 no. I see this. I have benefited from the system. I've partaken of this system, whether I was willing or not. And so I am ready to repent because I want to see the hand of God move in this situation. What gives me hope personally is the word of God and the story of Hagar. As a descendant of enslaved people, when I see the story of Hagar, I see my great grandmother. And I see these women who were cast out, who were downtrodden, who were abused, who were misused by people that owned them. And when they said they had enough, God spoke down and said, you know what, baby girl, I see you. If no one else in the world sees you, I, God, the almighty, I see you and I will make a promise to you and I will take care of you. And so I truly am my ancestors' wildest dreams. I don't believe that a little slave girl in Mississippi ever thought that one of her descendants would be able to get that level of education, would be able to own their own home, be able to do these things. And so that gives me hope knowing that no matter who has rejected me, no matter what labels people put on me, if God sees me, that's the identity that I identify with, that I am seen by him. Um, I think for me, um, I am a little bit shakier <laughs> in terms of just where my hope lies. But I think for me, what I cling on to is that Jesus can relate, you know, like I, I, the other day I was having a conversation with a friend where I was just like, you do realize that like Jesus was murdered by the state, right? Like sure the Pharisees like set him up, right? But the Pharisees as a religious um, power did not have the power to execute him. They had to go to the state. They had to use like the power of the state to murder Jesus, right? For an innocent man, even the, even the man who was, who led the state, you know, his own wife came to him and was like, that man didn't do anything. Don't do anything to him. And he, because of the position that he was in and because he was thinking about himself, because of all the bureaucracy that was behind him and the power that he would lose, sent an innocent man to death, right? Mm -hmm. And the religious leaders thought that like, oh, this is the right thing to do. We want to do this. Who the heck is this random hippie from Galilee showing up and hanging out with prostitutes and all these other people? And they killed him and they dusted off their hands and they walked away, right? And now look at us, like we're basically, you know, out here talking about more injustice, more state-sponsored violence. I think I get a lot of, oh, sorry, I'm gonna get very emotional. Hmm. I get a lot of solace from just knowing that Jesus understands, you know, like, hmm. so, you know, I, like I said, my, my hope and my faith today, especially, I'm like, whew, I'm, I'm so hurt. I'm so hurt, you know, but I, I know that like Christ can relate. Yeah. yeah.
The conversation of race is a hard one, fraught with so many nuances and lived realities. Intersectionalities that play a role in how we each see the world depends so much on our gender and the color of our skin. We heard from women today who represent millions of people in North America who don't feel heard, don't feel seen because of the color of their skin. So how do we change this? We learned creating space for dialogue is key, showing allyship is essential, and dare I say, seeing all women, especially women of color as God's image bearers, is a good start. What are your thoughts? Join the conversation by visiting us at context.show. For all of us here at Context, thanks for watching.